The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. I'm joined today by James Norman, who is the CEO of Pilotly, to the episode today. Welcome, James. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, James, Pilotly, you, give us an idea of, you know, your career trajectory thus far. Yeah, I mean, I mean, career is the funny word for it. I always associate, like, career with job. But, yeah, I mean, my trajectory is, like, it's kind of, like, goes way, way back, considering, like, the first... I mean, really, if you go all the way back, the first company I started was selling video game tips. That was like, had to be like 92 or something like that. But that wasn't like real money. That was just money to buy more video games. Right. <laughs> like my first, my first real company was like in 1995 when we started MJ Sound. And so, and so I started selling car audio online. So uh, anyways, I ran that business for like four years or so, actually a little bit longer. But then um, I think my mom was like, you know, it's not your future sending boxes to my home and shipping stuff out and running a business out of here. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. So you need to go to college. Right. So I went and did electrical engineering at University of Michigan, which is funny because like all the car audio stuff, it really kind of eases your transition into what otherwise would be super, super hard because it's all physics. Right. So, you know, the ohms, the resistance, the amp, you know, all that. I've been doing that for years. So I was like, oh, cool. Physics. I got that. So uh, did that. During that time, the audio company pivoted, started building entire cars. And so I began to be, I was a coach builder at that point. So basically building custom vehicles, kind of like a Roush or a Celine, doing it for high net worth individuals. Um, and then I moved to LA around 2005 and I was doing it for movies like Fast and Furious as well. All that Hollywood stuff, I think opened my eyes to like television and like media in general. And when the recession hit around 2007, 2008, I was already kind of getting into streaming video, but I decided like literally at that moment that like cable's too expensive. And so I'm going to cancel my cable and I'm going to like watch TV online. And as I did that, I ran into a bunch of challenges. I was like, this, like, I, it's hard to get to the content. You know, I got a bunch of specialized equipment. I'm thinking like the average person can pull this off. Yeah. So like, how do I make this so the average person can have this the experience that I've kind of hobbled together in like a streamlined product. And I started shifting away from auto just because at that time, the auto industry was really failing. My best friend, technically the co-founder of Pilotly, who actually is rejoining Pilotly in a month, his college roommate from school, he went to MIT, his college roommate from school came to town. And so Drew was starting Dropbox. And so that kind of like opened up my eyes to the idea that, that you could raise money for a company and that like, you know, like all these things I didn't know about. I, the whole time, the whole time I've been talking to you this entire time we've been on this podcast is I've just been doing stuff and making money online. I didn't understand what it would be to actually have capital to scale a team and build an organization or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in Y Combinator, which was new at the time. And so I got kind of firsthand exposure to some of that. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go do that. Right. 
So now I started down this path of building Yubi, which was the first electronic programming guide online, like HTML5 based. And so from 2008 to 2013, I spent my time trying to convince people that by 2020, no one would have cable. And this was like a really wild concept to these people. I think the only person, there's only a handful of people who actually like really grasped onto it. And they were early in their times too. But one person that's really notable to me is that Albert Chang. Albert Chang's head of Amazon Studios today. But in 2008, he was one of the executives that also had that point of view. And so just him giving me that feedback and him being even who he was back then was enough for me to be like, this is something because this is not like he's literally thinking his career right now is not like, you know, what it's going to be 12 years from now. So if he thinks that as a high level executive, then like I'm on to something. So anyways, I spent about, you know, five years running that company maybe six and just all the experiences you could have, you know, had the wrong co-founder, you know, I wasn't a great CEO, hired the wrong engineer, had crazy angel investors, you know, it's like anything could be wrong. But then around 2011, my mom was watching CNN and she's like, I saw this thing about black people in Silicon Valley. You should apply to this program. And like, my mom doesn't know anything about what I do. Never has barely, never, barely, never will. You know, she just supports me. She seems to infuse really good advice at right points in time in your career. Yeah, 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 exactly. So like <laughs> these little points, you know, and so I apply the thing and I, cause I never get into any of these things either. So I always apply the Y Combinator, all these things. I never get in. So I was like, I don't have time for this. So I applied because my mom said so. And I got in and I was just like, okay. So this program knew me was bringing people of color to Silicon Valley and housing them. So like we had a house, super nice house on a hill in San Francisco. And, wow. you know, it was a 16, 18 week program. And yeah, we just were there working and that's how I got to the Bay. So that was my introduction to the Bay. I was probably only here for a few days. And I was like, I'm not leaving. And so I couldn't get her to move. I couldn't get her to move here without me having a job. Where was she moving from? From Detroit. Ah, so you had to get a job to make sure you could secure a future and then she would move out here. Well, I can secure a future no matter what. She just wouldn't believe that I could do it. I get it. Yeah, fair point. See, right. So I was like, yeah, so I went and got a job for a year as a software developer, which was cool, right? Because that was not a job offer. It was not a job available to me prior, right? Right. So I went and became a developer. I learned a lot, right? This I didn't go work at Google or Facebook or something like that. I worked at like this older publishing company that wanted to have um, a video platform on mobile, which... You're only going to find a handful of people that can do that for you. That's what the fast five years building these things. And the people who can do it, they work at Google or Facebook. And these types of companies can't afford to hire people with that talent. So they hire me for like, a you know, what I think is a decent salary because I only had one other job in my life. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'll do it. And I start learning from this like really senior, senior guy from Canada. He's crazy dude, but, you know, he would calm down and like really like, teach me. So I learned like a lot of structure from him. But what I also learned in that environment was how toxic it is. And so when you have a development environment where like you're the only black person, there is unconscious bias that seeps in. When you think about coding is really an art form. There's no like rhyme or reason to it. You don't have to code things the same way to get things done, but people have certain patterns and ways they believe things need to be done regardless of the outcome. Right? So if what I built works and you don't like exactly the way I did it, then it doesn't work, which doesn't make sense because it's bug free and works. So like you end up in the situation where people are challenging like your intelligence purely off of their own opinion and not like pure fact of the products aren't working. So, but then you also have the internal dynamics of how people communicate with each other. And this is why I dove really deep into communication. And that's why I also start really realizing like 
you know, I wasn't such, I wasn't the best CEO because my communication wasn't right. You know, even to today, like I have certain points of communication that I know are unique to me. And I just try and like forewarn people and, or like create signals for myself to like tailor the way I speak in some cases. Cause it's all about, I might have a certain intention, but how it's received also matters. And, and so like in these environments, there's a lot of passive aggressive conversation. When you start getting all people of the same type into a certain room, they have a certain level of comfort with the way they communicate with each other, which might not translate to other people outside of that group. And so, yeah, like just a lot of, um, I learned a lot. I was like, I have to build a diverse engineering team from the start, or this is where it's going to end up. And so, so anyways, I was there for a year. She moved out and I went and I was like, okay, so I was already building group flicks the entire time. So I wanted to build a la carte TV service. So I was spending my spare time doing that anyways. So now I'm kind of going into that. Now I got my, now I know all the pieces of the puzzle, you know, went to the battery batteries, like this place where all the VCs go here. And I sat down with everybody and I said, Hey, how do I do this? How do I go into YC? I'm done playing your game of this application. This is a game. So how do I play the game? And he was like, well, if you have four founders, the equity needs to be split evenly. Now this makes no sense because I built the entire product and I hired the team. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I don't care here. We're going to split the equity up evenly. What's next? Well, the first question asks you, you know, what does your product do? We need more than that. We actually want to know why you think this. I'm like, and the question doesn't ask that, but you know, this is like some Ivy League, like mental war game nonsense they're playing here. So like the first question, I'm writing five answers to five different questions and it's not asking. So like, anyways, we literally go back and forth on this application, fill it all out, boom, boom. And now I got interviews. Now I'm actually like getting called in to go meet these people. And I'm bringing a team with me that's like rock star team, right? Functioning product. Wait, where did you get the rock star team from? These are just my friends. Like, so these are just your friends. Okay. Right. These are my friends who, like, you know, these guys are MIT engineers. And they believe in the vision. Right. And they believe in me. They know me to a man who's been making a living, not working at a new job. So, like, they're like, all right, we want to do it. Right. Let's do it. And we're going to go. And the whole point is we're going to go to Y Combinator, which is also something that people find interesting. Right. So, we go pitch them, nothing, no interview. Do it a second time, nothing, no interview, no next step. The third time they're calling us to come back. And I'm like, I ain't coming back. Like how many times I'm going to talk to you? I, I've, been, I've been submitting companies to them for nine years with the recommendations of, I'm like, put, how do you know? I'm putting Drew Houston and Mike Seibel. Like I'm putting like the people who- Reputable, amazing people, right. Reputable put this thing on. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't slide in here. That's crazy. So- Anyways, then some investors told me, if you get the content contracts, we'll give you the money. So I went and got the content contracts for like an electronic sell-through model that was basically molding the feel like a la carte TV. I got contracts from Warner Brothers, Stars, a couple other people. So we're ready to launch a la carte TV service, which is all the rage in 2014, 15. This is before everybody has first party services. Yeah. I got the contracts and the money and nobody should show up with the money. And I was like, okay, so we got this team, we got the full product. We got a thousand people on the platform. Like AMC sent me a cease and desist because I ran a beta and we can't get $2 million. I was like, all right, there's a stark problem here, right? Because I'm not going to use my resources to do this. I just spent six years struggling to get to like some sort of exit with my previous company. Like, so, you know, I've always been told like, once you get an exit, once you do this, then, you know, it's going to be better. Right. And it's like, I've already proven myself. Right. So it's like, okay, what are we going to do here? All right. First thing we're going to do is we're going to go back to these studios and tell them like, hey, sorry, we don't got the money, but how do you get data? And that's when they started telling me about focus groups in Burbank and Orlando and Vegas and just all the traditional processes that have been set up by ASI and Nielsen and all these things. And um, I said to them, I was like, five years from now, like, 
Netflix is going to make like, at the time I was like over 500 shows like in a year. Now it's like 900, but you know, it's going to be hundreds. Right. And at that point in time, like Hollywood cumulatively was not making more than 400 shows a year. So you're talking about, there's going to be single companies producing more than that. Sure. Right. And you're going to have to follow. It's going to be impossible to run that process to do your research that way. You know, because you're not, you're not going to scale up a hundred percent research organization and you're not even going to be able to pull enough people in these three specific locations to do this kind of work. And it's going to be global. So it's like, this whole process doesn't work. And so they, well, it's been working for about 30 years. We'd love to see what you could do. And so I kept hearing that. And I went to go study with the people that had invented those processes, you know, from a Wayne Neiman to a Dave Poltrack to, you know, talking to Artie Bulger and these people who like really kind of mavens in this space, but they're all retiring. Like their 60 years or whatever years of knowledge is in their head and not transferred to like these younger people who are in these positions. So anyways, that's how we came to do pilotly because we were like, hey, we need to be able to test pilot content effectively anywhere in the world, like with the right audience. So that started happening. Then simultaneously, another friend of mine had a similar experience around getting resources to grow his company. We got in a room together and we said, hey, when I say friend of mine, like we were born together. So you're talking about two people who grew up around the same neighborhood, you know, similar values, different high schools. Similar life experience. Yeah. Similar life experience. Like was my roommate in college, both engineers from Michigan. You know, both he came out here a year after me to start his tech company. So like, and it's only it's only two data points, but the two data points were enough to be like, it is impossible. This, dude, this, this feels like a problem. Right. This dude, this dude is like a certified genius, right? Like he didn't even go his last two years in high school. He was at college and high school. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about like this dude's smart, right? So anyways, we were like, we know all these people. We know all the VCs. We, you know, we know all these people. All right. They won't give us money. Maybe it's just us. They don't like us. That's fine. They won't give us money. But we need to create a program where we can create a forcing factor where we're going to put the best people of color in front of them. And if you don't invest then, now I can call you out, right? You know, so I can't call you out in two data points. I can tell you there's a problem. But if I put, right, if we cyclically put companies in front of you and you're not writing checks, then we're calling you out. So we create a transparent collective and that program uh, targets women and underrepresented founders of color. We basically help them get the resources they need to scale their company. So, you know, it started as a one day program. It was like a wildly intensive 24 hours that, that culminated in a demo day, but it expanded into a week where we go like deep into storytelling, financial strategy and fundraising, team dynamics, product strategy. You know, we, we touch on a lot of things and then the end, there's still a demo day and we get 81% of our founders funded. We're definitely the strongest platform for black founders. And, and that was illuminating for me because that's not by chance. In the same way, like a Y Combinator is probably the strongest platform for like white male Ivy League people. It's because the people who run it come from that lens. And so I can help a lot of people. I'm naturally going to be more helpful to other Black founders because I've literally walked this path a ton of times. And so I can see and hear exactly what you're seeing and hearing, which is hard for other people to actually understand. Why is that hard to understand, though? Because people will believe that you're building a company. You're a smart person. You're building a company. And so, like, you know, for instance, I come to you as, you know, YC kind of mentality VC. I look at your cap table, right? And you're like, hmm, this founder, you know, hey, man, you don't really have as much ownership of the company as you should. I think that's kind of a challenge for us to invest further. Like, because are you, are you really incentivized to really take this to the next level? And so 
I think we should talk to your original investors about maybe recapping your cap table. You know, if we could do something like that, I think we could get comfortable putting money in. And like that conversation makes sense for a founder who's been running a typical process, maybe went through YC and all this, like that can make sense for you. When you're talking to a black founder, like that person only got money at this point. Now things are shifting over time in the past 12 months and they'll continue to shift forward. But previously you're talking to someone who raised money because they pitched something that was the end all be all and they believe in the resilience and grit of that human being. And that no matter what happens, the company is going to carry forward. So like for me to come back, like my incentive to see this company through is not tied to that. You know what I'm saying? It's tied to many more things, right? It's tied to proving people wrong. It's tied to, you know, growing a team of other people of color and bringing them in. It's tied to a bunch of other things than just how much do I own versus this person? Right. It's changing society to a certain degree. It's changing society to a certain degree. And so like the other person can't manifest that in their head because that's not in their view. So that's just like a simple example that I talked to a founder about the other day. Like, yeah. You know, we're just out here operating differently. Now we can go out of that conversation. We can go to the, we can go back to the original VC and tell them like, hey, so the market is saying that there's a poor perception around me having low ownership. What do you want to do about that? Right. A black person can't put it out there that, yo, so I told you this deal, like, because we're not cheaters like that. Like, you know, we kind of shook hands. This was my word. I knew, you know, like me as that founder, I knew that I could have get a better deal, but this is the deal I got. I shook that hand and this is what I did. We don't go back with people. We don't go back. Right. Exactly. You know, so now you're fighting a cultural thing. Yes. Oh, that's interesting too. Yeah. So it's your word, right? You had a deal. It's yeah. your word. That's the only thing that black people have that can't be challenged. Like if I give you my word, I will make it happen. And like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. all barriers in my way, I will make it happen. Otherwise I'm not giving you my word. And so like, that's a super valuable thing in that culture. That's powerful. So let me ask you, a lot of these companies that the 81% of the companies you got funded, were there different type of VCs that put money in? Like what was the network of people or companies that invested in those companies that you brought to bear? So let's see, the investors kind of varied, but also we have a lot of repeat investors. Like you look at a precursor, you look at a concrete rose, look at a K-Pour, these people are invested in more than one transfer collective company. So it's kind of a certain type of VC. And we do have relationships with those people. But those relationships, I mean, I knew, I've known Charles for a long time, but like overwhelmingly those relationships are related to bringing them in in the programming and getting them involved in mentoring. Yeah. So like, yeah, early on. So we bring these people into the program. So like, it's not a wide variety though. Like there's definitely repeat, not offenders, but repeat investors. Like, so we're still trying to like expand it out. So we're getting there. We got some angels involved too. So like Band of Angels likes to get involved and hear the pitches and stuff like that. So that, that's that's good too. So it's coming along. It's amazing. I mean, it seems like obviously you're the co-founder and CEO of Pilotly, which takes up a lot of time, but it seems like you work on lots of initiatives that are broader than just the company, but really helping, you know, what I'll say, change society. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, my parents were social workers. So while they didn't understand what I'm doing, like the thing that I got from them was just like, I'm just used to being around people who like their goal is to help people, you know? Yeah. That's kind of just intrinsic in the things that I like to do. So in my team's that way too, right? So like the early team of Pilotly is also volunteering and helping Transparent Collective. And, you know, so the team's involved too. And, and it helps them get exposure to 
what I deal with, right? Because now they're volunteering and meeting with other CEOs and being around that space. So this helps everybody just get their heads wrapped around what's going on. And it also helps them too, like um, to see that um, here's a bunch of other super talented people that also didn't get funded. So like when we're building our company and we're not getting funding, it can be frustrating, but it's just camaraderie, unfortunately, in the fact that like, here's a bunch of other people with the same problem. Now, the funny part is I'm able to solve it for other people. <laughs> it's hard to solve things for yourself. I was going to ask you, did you ever go out and officially raise money for Pilot Life? A long time ago, I did 500 startups and, uh, you know, I did raise a small amount of money. But as that story goes, which I can't walk through on a podcast, but like, you know, I have a colleague that also started a market research company at the same time. And you can follow the trajectory of the same year through two different programs. I went through 500. He went through Stars. Really? You can follow the trajectory. And out the gate, you know, I get 48% of my round. Now, he has an idea he's pitching. I have a company with customers that I'm pitching at Demo Day. So these are two different things. And I have a lead investor at Demo Day. So two different things. But in the end, you know, when you look over the past five years, he has 40 times the funding and 10 times the employees, but three times the revenue. And so one business is better than the other. But... It's hard for people, like once you get behind in the funding cycles, it's hard to maintain a certain level of momentum that seems to be um, beget additional funding. So yeah, like we've attempted to raise money subsequently after like forexing the revenue two years in a row and like landing the biggest customers in our space, things of that nature. But every time it's like, well, maybe a little bit more, maybe it's not big enough. And it's like, it's look, here's the thing. Here's what I tell people. And my friend Rick, he gave this to me. He said, said, what's the biggest export from the United States? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like thinking like physical goods, you know? He's like culture. I'm like, okay, that's true. Okay, what is the transmitter of culture? Oh, media. All right. Who defines what media goes on your television? Pilotly. Okay. So Pilotly is in control of the biggest export of the United States and by far the most important one because we're constantly pushing our democratic agenda globally, worldwide. And how's that happen? Media. So like, Pilotly is one of the most important companies there could be if you pour the capital into it to allow it to see its you know, full potential. So in the meantime, yeah, we keep growing it and we have great customers. We do great work. But Pilotly could really be the end all be all of like really the understanding of the human condition and how we actually like receive and transmit media. You ever get angry? Um, I used to. Um, but, you know, all the failures and challenges I have are what makes it possible for that 81% of people to get funded out of the program, right? So like, if it should, if everything just went well for me, I wouldn't have any answers, right? But, you know, that's just kind of what, I mean, I'm blessed to do what I do every day anyways, right? So like, if I was put on earth to do this, for it to be more challenging for me than anybody else, uh, as far as this business stuff goes, then I'm already kind of, I've already kind of like, um, I don't know, I've already kind of cut my edges. So like, there's ups and downs, but, uh, you know, I would say like my solution says meditation, you know, like kind of just got to recenter yourself. So like, actually I got that from my friend, um, Neil, he's an actor. So like, you know, actors, they go casting, they get no, 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 no. Right. And it's different, um, because as a founder, you're pitching this company and all that, and you feel attached to it because you came up with it, but it's not you. When you're going to acting thing, until, you know, they're telling you suck, you know what I'm saying? And so it's a, it's personal, you know what I'm saying? And so you can't persevere through that without like a good, like mental and or spiritual practice. And so like, he really put me on to, yeah, man, every morning I reset. I always find that I always have to make this time for myself, you know, reset. And then it's a new day. And today I'm going to win, you know? And, and like, he did that for like a year 
he got a network television show and now he's a legit actor. You know, he's on Scandal. That's it. Now his career is this. Done. You know, so, so yeah, like that stuff's important. And I think that. So you, you know, meditate every day? Yeah. How long? Because I've been struggling with meditation. I'm just curious. Not long, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Okay. Okay, good. There's hope. There's hope. That's you know, great. Because like people are like, oh, I can't do it. Like, you know, I'm just thinking about so many things. I'm like, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like anything. Like at first you can only lift a 10 pound weight. So right. you're gonna they're gonna feel like you ain't doing nothing, but like you know, a couple of weeks later you're gonna be like, oh, I could lift twenty, I could lift thirty, you know. You just gotta be committed to it. Yeah, you commit to it. You know what I'm saying? That's how I handle that. Getting angry, that does not play out well. I know, I know it doesn't. Because I think I'm past the anger phase too. Yeah, I think for me, I think you know, I don't know when a while back I just said I got to convert the anger into something productive mm-hmm. and in something that's gonna be more fruitful for you know, the people around me and it kind of dissipates when you feel like you're actually helping others and not just being obsessed with what's going on with yourself. Yeah. And like, I remember Mike Seville told me, he was like, I'm black. This I cannot change. So if you are telling me no, because of your preconceptions or notions of what I look like and how I'm presenting, that is your problem. So I'm going to let that be your problem. And like, it's hard for, it's hard to really, really embody that all the time. Like, you know, but I kind of always kind of go back to that. Like, this is not actually my problem. So I'm going to not take it on. You know, I'm only going to do so much. I'm not going to take it on, you know. So I always tell people that I'm like, I try and coach them on what needs to be done to communicate what they're saying. But do not go to like the world's end to convince this one person of what you're doing. Like, if you are saying something that's compelling, this person can't see it because of who who the words are coming from. Yeah. Then you waste your time. Move on. Find the person who can who can accept you and the idea. Who can hear it. There's someone who can hear it. Like, that's a fact. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. That's so true. So tell me where Pilotly is in its journey. I mean, obviously, you're working with all the major companies to help test and get better messaging for new content. You know, what are your future plans for the company? It's funny now because I don't have to like, I'm not really supposed to say my clients, but uh, I mean, it's anybody and everybody. So I can say, if you can think of the name, you know, they're using Pilotly to some capacity. The next step for us, because that's new, right? Like, you know, six months ago, I can say that. So now we spent all these years trying to get, you know, the who's who of Hollywood entertainment using this product. So now it's about, you know, further expanding the use of the product within the organization. We see ourselves as sales forces to a sales team, Pilotly is to a research team. We're like an extension and technology platform for the research team. Research team can only grow so far. The research team needs tools and partners to actually help them execute. And so we're the kind of self-contained solution for that team to get any kind of insights they need. So now you have the fact that the product teams are somewhat siloed off from the research teams typically. You know, research teams who talks to creative development and marketing, maybe some executives, they're not talking to product. Product's not super important because these people all own first party like streaming platforms. And that's where the content's going. And so now we've um, kind of become the, I don't know, I don't think anybody else actually does it. We built like a simulated platform framework. So now we have fake being like complete replica versions of these people's streaming platforms. So now the product team can do UX testing, but the creative team can also test content within the context of the actual platform. And that's game changing because the product team doesn't have time to do that for the creative development team. They don't have time to build like an A-B testing situation where they can control what content sees what 
you know, user and collect survey information. Like they're busy building a streaming platform. And for most of these companies, that's new to them and half, half outsourced. Even the tech companies, these are not their core competencies. Like this Apple TV will never make Apple a significant amount of money. It's a vanity play. It's a way to keep your customers in the ecosystem. It's a way to keep them buying iPads and Apple TV, et cetera. This platform ain't going to make a billion dollars. You know what I'm saying? So the teams that are allocated to these things aren't the same. They don't have the same capacity as the company itself, right? And so we, again, step in to build that capacity. And so that's been super interesting as well to begin touching base with product teams. And do you create any normative data? Um... Yeah. Yep. So and that took a number of years, right? But like now we have some pretty good norms and we're trying to continue developing our normative data internationally because we do a lot of work around the world now. And so that's a big focus of ours, like the last quarter of this year, just really honing in on that and like getting more meticulous about it. You know, I'm taking the norms to a level where we're, you know, taking into consideration the different demographics that were involved in the given study. Because, you know, the, the norms have been very content length and type based. So now we want to start bringing in, well, who were the people who responded? And do we have enough data there to like section it off into, well, males 18 to 34 who watch dramas really like this, you know? So we're trying to get more granular with it for the new year as we continue to expand. But yeah, so that's our plan. Like we're hiring like as much as we can right now, you know, focusing on enhancing these norms. We've been in beta for a year now on our virtual focus group platform, and that goes live next week. So yes, we're excited about, everybody's excited about Real Chat because we just re-engineered like the virtual conversation experience. Like right now we're just two boxes and Real Chat, we're in an environment, you know, we can listen to music. You know, we can all talk at the same time without getting canceled out. We can have a heated argument. You know, you got a real back room, transcriptions, all that. Like, so we're excited about all that. And then we are going to be continuing to work on our cultural cohort analysis and begin grouping people outside of gender and age because that's not so defining in terms of people's preference of content. So, you know, there's a young white kid in college then there's me, then there's a older Hispanic woman somewhere who all watch Squid Games. Yep. You know? And so it's like to define these things by like age groups, like is kind of meaningless in today's day and age. Like it's a way to do it. You're familiar, but like we want to change that in, in the coming years for sure. Like just start creating cohorts of people that have similar feelings about the world and content is same amount of relevance to them. James, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your honesty and you're doing some amazing work and, you know, again, impacting society in a really positive way. Thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to highlight some of this and have the conversation. Of course. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended but your exploration doesn't have to. 
Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.